Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast. My name is Dominic. My co-host's name is Janice, and you will hear from him in a little bit. We are on episode number 35, and today we talk to Mr. Christopher Ballardi about the German folk art of Braukere and powwow. Mr. Ballardi is an occasional practitioner of Pennsylvania Braukere and an occultist of 39 years. He is a researcher of many systems of traditional European and British folk magic and operative witchcraft. He holds a bachelor's degree in English from Wilkes University and has completed graduate studies in sociology and anthropology at Lehigh University. Amongst his involvements, he is a member of the Pennsylvania German Society and is an itinerant Catholic priest. Bolardi is the author of The Red Church, published in 2009, Walwalopen, a forgotten Pennsylvania Dutch enclave, self-published in 2010, and his upcoming projects include the soon-to-be-released My Life with Sibylique by Christine Jones. This is the biography of Sibylique's last initiate and companion of Britain's most famous witch. On the back burner for him is the translation of the 19th century Bosnian Codex regarding Arabic and Balkan folk magic, which is connected to the traditional grimoires Asham Zalmarif and the Persian Tam Tami Hindi. Mr. Bilardi is also a student of Sufi mysticism. Before we jump into the interview, I just want to say, as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. It isn't free to run a podcast, so the support of our Patreon members is very much appreciated and does help keep the show moving along. If you would like to also contribute and help us continue the work that we're doing, uh, just head over to Patreon and do what you can. We dedicate this work to Hermes and Asclepius, and may the merits we accumulate doing this work be extended to all sentient beings so that they, together with us, may equally realize awakening. Okay, welcome to the show, everyone. This is going to be a pleasure for us. We have Mr. Christopher Bellardi here uh, to join us, and we're going to talk about the art of Brockerai, the folk magic of the Germans of Pennsylvania, his book, The Red Church, which covers that, and I'm sure many other things. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. So glad to have you on. It's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's crazy. We talked about earlier. We all know each other from past lives. <laughs> you and I, you and I met maybe twenty five years ago, and so it's it's hard to believe half a century, isn't it crazy? Um, and and now we're here doing this, and you, you and Janice know each other as well, separately. So right, it's quite. Interesting. I should say quarter of a century. Bad enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is bad enough. We've been talking about your book for a long time. It's it's an awesome book. It's it's just such a wealth of knowledge. And you have since moved on. You you you've got your hands in all sorts of interesting things that we oh yes probably will touch on. But um, Brockerai has not received very much attention, and uh, folk magic is definitely um, very popular right now. But Brockerai is not is not even on the radar. So I think this will be interesting. To, it might be an introduction for a lot of people to this, this art form. Right. And it, I, it was, I was under the assumption, wrongly so, that it, it was getting more popular. I, I think there, there was a little peak. Hmm. But 
who knows? Uh, I was 2015. I was in a documentary uh, called Hex Hollow, and that was all about the murder of Nelson Raymeyer, uh, an alleged witch who uh, supposedly cast spells on uh, a young man named Blymeyer. He and a few friends back in the, I think it was 1927, I could be wrong, I'm doing this from memory, mm-hmm. that uh, they, they murdered Raymeyer because they couldn't, they couldn't find or he wouldn't tell where his book of spells was. And that book, of course, is The Long Lost Friend, which is, which is de rigueur down, down in, uh, as I call it, German land, because everybody ha- almost everybody had one or knew of somebody who had one. And they thought if they got his book, it would break the spell, or if they got his book in a piece of his hair. But Nelson Raymeyer was a giant of a man. They, they tried to murder him, and then he wasn't really dead, wrapped him up in a, a a mattress, a bed mattress, and try to light him on fire and burn him. The the idiots didn't realize that it takes about five thousand degrees or more Fahrenheit to to burn away a body, and all there was was a, a, a charred uh, Mister Ray Meyer. And today, and uh, it, it's quite an attraction going to see the the uh, Ray Meyer house. So. Well, it's crazy because that murder had repercussions, and that happened in the 20s or 30s, and that uh, there were dominoes that fell that lead all the way up to the present day. Right, uh, and, and when it happened, it, it was an international, it was an international gawking spectacle, and it was terribly embarrassing to the state of, well, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and the governor, among other people tried to do something about the so-called backward Germans and they tried to suppress this this uh, so-called witchcraft uh, as much as they could and that's how some of it started going more underground than it already was along with right. the German language well let's let's take a step back how did you get involved in this well uh, on both sides of my family I had I had folk healers, and I didn't know about it on my father's side. And they all were doing basically the same thing. The, the Irish and English part of my family, they, they, they were doing what we would now call cunning uh, art. And it seems that that's the, the new rage to call these practices cunning. Uh, but that's what they... That's what they were doing, taking off, uh, being overlooked, that, that sort of thing. Uh, when people's day-to-day problems and needing charms for going out to sea and whatever, uh, whatever their ventures were, making little talismans on paper, which were usually the, the famous Satyr Square and uh, bunch of squiggles and doodles and and really broken vulgar latin and that's what they were doing now on my father's side i didn't know this until my father passed away and his cousin my elder cousin uh told me that my grandmother uh my father's mother uh josephine 
when all the men went to the coal mines and they were wherever they were going to work, my grandmother had a liner. There was a total queue of women all the way to her kitchen. And she, they were coming to her to get rid of the evil eye, to get pregnant because they were barren and chase away ghosts and all this other stuff. So I didn't know that. My father never told me that. And my grandmother, my uh, paternal grandmother had a thing for feeling out ghosts and she knew where they were and knew how to get rid of them. And that's that's the Italian side, correct? It it is. So where does the German the German connection come come in? Well, like I said in the the beginning of the the introduction, I don't have any direct German except perhaps through my grandfather. I have no idea. Nobody back in those days talked talked much about uh, these things because it was just old news to them and they didn't think anybody would be interested in the, the future. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Same with my family. So you know, when you live in a family that don't, doesn't talk too much on both sides, uh, <laughs> it, it leaves one wanting. Yeah. So how did you find your, your teacher in Brockeray? Well, I, I had several, one of which was myself. I, I went through all of the old books and uh, eventually, through a professor who's, who I became friends with, Dr. David Kreeble, he had in some of his early writings on the internet, he had <clears throat> various academic papers. And there was a, a lady that he interviewed that he named Daisy. And, and her husband, I forget what pseudonym he gave him, because I, I there's two names floating around, and I don't want to give the the real name uh, by accident, but the the main actor was Daisy, the actual powwow lady. And I made, uh, it, I tried to make contact with Dr. Kreeble, and eventually I was able to do it. And he made a phone call to Daisy, and then she said, yes, come on, uh, come and do it. And the test was this. If you were meant to do it, it was all oral. And she said to me, if you can repeat after me what I tell you without writing it down, then we go on to the second part, which is longer. And if you can remember that the first part and the second part without having to ask me or whatever, if you could do it flawlessly, then you're meant to do it. And I, I did. I remembered the whole thing. and. Then she taught me the the particular, very complex series of uh, hand movements over the body, and that the incantations, the charms, the spells, whatever you prayers, whatever you wish to call them, that I memorized were part of parcel of these hand movements. Very, very uh, intricate. Uh, they were one of. They were one of the things that was left out of the Red Church. Um, I, and the one caveat I want to say about the Red Church is that there were several diagrams as well as visual directions to do these movements along with extra tables that never made it in. And there are, uh, because 
the editors, the the fellow who was doing the editing on on the book, he his spell checker just wrought havoc on the German, and he corrected as much of it as he could. So uh, when we get to certain things, like in the the book, he the spell checker want took Braucherei and put in the U U A instead of A U, mm. and just stuff like that that annoyed the absolute daylights out of me. <laughs> um, the one thing that that Daisy did tell me is that I could only pass it along once, and that if I should reveal it to more than one person or write it down, then I would lose the ability to do it. Have you ever passed it on to anybody? No, no, because it has to go male to female. That's but interesting. I, I, you see, I also broke a, a taboo. I, uh, according to a lot of people who are very unhappy with me right now and have been for since 2009, uh, that I was unethical in in publishing that but uh daisy never told me not to she said if you do if you do this then you'll lose the power it you just have to keep it secret otherwise you lose it interesting so there are some people who thought well this was a highly unethical thing and now i'm forgotten in certain circles and i don't care <laughs> well, thank you for bringing this. I mean, I love the book, so uh, much appreciation for doing it, although um, at what cost, I guess. Um, yes, it cost me a lot, actually. And on the other hand, though, like from what I understand, this culture is is dwindling. And so having a respectful and reverent um, historical documentation of it may actually assist in preserving the culture. I mean, exactly. It it really is dwindling. And that's because of, uh, I don't know what you wish to call it, but there's just this very generic plastic culture that's being pushed on every area of not only the United States, but the entire world. It's a, it's a very bland corporate type culture and people who are rooted in a certain place with a certain type of culture, language, whatever, they've all been been assimilated to this. So you know what I you know what I'm talking about when I say plas- plastic cor- corporate culture. Yeah, we actually were talking about this yesterday, and I think I even used the the word plastic to describe not only our world nowadays, but our culture is becoming more plastic and. Um, yeah, I, we totally get what you're saying. Oh, yeah, and it's not just us. I, I, this is happening all over. And as an aside, it it's one reason why more of the, the fundamentalist Muslim sects are pushing back because they don't want this to happen to themselves. Now, that's that's just one tiny bit of their, their problems, but they, they resist and absolutely resent the hell out of this uh this global corporate culture that that's just taking over everything like uh the the kudzu weed it makes sense so chris um let's let's talk about brockeray and powwow Mm -hmm. um 
before we get too deep, can we define it? Can you define it for us? Is it the same as powwow? And where do these names come from? Um, as much okay. background as you're comfortable giving. All right. Um, from what I can remember, like I said, the original term is Brauchrei. And just as in other places, there are many euphemisms for this work. Uh, all throughout Europe, the, um, and using Italy as a comparison, there's really no name except names that people make up for it. Usually it's just something like my one friend, uh, Jason Spadafori, would say uh, they what they would say about it is the things we do, the way we do things. There was, there was no calling it much of anything. And so then there were other just indirect ways to refer to it because at one point in the modern, uh, the early modern period, which is when the, the, the witch trials were at their frenzy, uh, everybody thinks that about witch trials being in the medieval period, and that there were, but the worst of it was during the early modern period. And anybody who who practiced any sort of healing, even if they were known as a white witch, by that term, even though the practitioner may not call called him or herself that, that was considered more dangerous than the black witch, because the white the black witch was out in the open about who he or she was, an emissary of Satan. But a white witch was trickier, not only an emissary of Satan, but posing as a, a healer and uh, and somebody who can be of great help and, and through those means suck people right into the hole of, of uh, Satan's minions. So the, the white witch was considered worse, strangely enough. Um, now, by their by their logic, anyway, it was it seemed to make sense. Sure. Powwow, however, nobody seems to to really know where it came from, and and I think that there'll be many who disagree with that. Some have related it to the powwows of Native Americans, uh, and I suppose there's an argument to be made for that. Here is a, a passage from Dr. David Kriebel, and he wrote, It is important to distinguish Pennsylvania Dutch powwowing from the quote-unquote powwows of the various indigenous peoples known as Native Indians or Native Americans. There may be some etymological connection. Perhaps settlers who were not Pennsylvania Dutch observed these practices and saw them as similar to those of the indigenous people, but the origin of the term powwow as applied to Braucha, Braucha uh, remains obscure. And there, there's a, a shorthand for Braucherai, which is Braucha, B-R-A-U-C-H-E. So uh, there you have it, right from a, a professor. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so, what what does the name Braukarai mean? You were beginning to explain it before we started the interview. What it is, and I, I hope too many, I hope not too many uh, German scholars don't spank me too hard for this. 
Valkyrie, as far as I can tell, is a noun that was made, that was conjured out of a verb. And the verb it comes from is brauchen. That's with an E-N. That, that's the infinitive form. And it means to need, to need something. And brauchrei uh, would mean then something to do something that's needed. Oh, okay. And there, it's applied in other, other contexts as well. I mean, in, in the German language, you'll hear brauche, brauchen in all sorts of contexts. Uh, and it, it has nothing to do with the, uh, the spiritual or magical practice itself. It's just a common German word. Okay. And essentially, it is folk magic, very similar to other types of folk magic we see in, in other areas, but it is mm-hmm. uh, specific to the Pennsylvania Germans. And it seems to be more um, geared towards uh, healing and protection more than anything else, from my limited um, understanding. Yes. And there are some rare forms of, of it being punitive. Uh, Dr. Don Yoder, uh, quite a while ago, had a hierarchy, different levels of expertise for this kind of art. And I would have to dig back so far to find what those were. But it, it basically starts out with someone who is proficient in, say, blowing fire, that is to get rid of, say, minor burns, inflammation mostly burns. Uh, someone would heal a burn and get rid of that. That was called blowing fire or getting, or people getting who have a knack for just one thing, like getting rid of warts, getting rid of inflammation, um, sore throats, whatever. They, they'd be a one trick pony, I, I guess you could say. And that was representative of a great many people. If you wanted your warts gone, you'd go to the guy down the street. Oh, you go to what's-his-face two farms away, and he'll get rid of your warts. If you wanted something else, uh, you'd have to go to granny so-and-so to, to do it. And then uh, beyond that were people who could do a bit more. Uh, they had longer reach to to get uh, to, to heal uh more things than just blowing fire, getting rid of warts and such things. Then at the top of it, I believe he called what the apex of this power uh, that people would have were what I would call full-blown magicians, people who worked with the sixth and seventh books of Moses, people who knew astrology and who worked with, as some people say, both hands, that they could both curse and make sick and as well as heal. And they were, they were, people were rather afraid of uh, the Hexenmeister, which it can be in, interpreted as witch master or spell master. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they led witches, uh, but, that they mastered the, their spells so they could get rid of them, um, or just mastering spells in, in general. And they were at the apex. They, they knew how to use these, these books of power. 
whereas, say, lesser practitioners would just be happy enough to have the sixth or seventh books of Moses, which was so thoroughly forbidden because it was considered the gateway to hell itself. Hmm. Because there's a Faustian element to it, and nobody would ever fess up to actually having a copy, even though there was a copy. Uh, I heard rumor that my own book made it into Amish country, and there was one family that my professor friend knew of, uh, an Amish couple who had it, and they hid it in their linen closets. Oh, interesting. <laughs> your book? Your book? My book, yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you're, you're, wow, you've, you've made it into the club. Yes, and the, the fun thing is, is Homan's book, which was ubiquitous, even though people would hide it, they, that book has been in constant print since 1820. It was finished in 1819, but Homan was actually able to get it out in 1820, and it's been in print ever since. And I have a feeling mine's going to be in print for quite a long time. And that's your uh, that's the long lost friend is is what you're t- referring to the long to. lost friend by by Homan. Just from memory, I believe Yoder's terms were uh, charmer, yes, powwower, hexenmeister, and then uh, I believe which was was separate. I don't know if which was on the the hierarchy. It it floated around up there because, well, I'll, I can explain that later. As I say in the beginning of that chapter, it's thorny because there's so many different concepts of what a wish is and what witchcraft is, and it's that could make that could actually make two shows. So, Chris, we we just touched on the long lost friend, and it seems uh, quite foundational to to this. Um, lifestyle and this kind of work. Can you talk about what kind of influence that book has on the art of powwow? Well, it's it's the go-to book. Now, some of it is rather outdated because if you look into it, it's not only a book of spells. It it was always meant to be one of those vadi mekum kind of books that a household would need. Because there are there are various formulae for making glue or doing certain things to leather or certain uh, procedures to preserve food and and things like that. I mean, really mundane kind of stuff for how to freshen up. I think it was the pow the the. Uh, Long lost friend that talked about extending the life of milk, things like that. And, uh, I, I may have over the years read that somewhere else, but it, good portions of that book m- merge what we consider to be the magical with very common things, like I said, how to make glue, how to do certain things to leather. And then they run into each other. There's no rhyme or reason to it. Similar to the Farmer's Almanac, maybe. Worse. (laughs) You can turn pages and there's one thing about cows and what to do with them. And then right next to it is a charm for cows. Mm. That's pretty cool. And there was, 
and there was they didn't consider this stuff magical they really they they thought of them more as prayers in a way that you know it, it's hard to describe these things when somebody doesn't use the the jargon that we use today their conception of things was a bit different and so if you said to them hey you're practicing magic or even worse witchcraft they they get all over you and say this isn't magic witchcraft i what's wrong with you this is to keep witches away they were so deeply religious um a lot of those cultures and peoples there was no separation between religious life and mundane life it was all it was all one thing absolutely and that that's what kept them together in the beginning it was religious persecution and respite from the 30 years war that so many germans came over to to pennsylvania they the very first boat of the, it was the concord i believe it it sailed from rotterdam and it landed in philadelphia and that was consider, considered what we call the uh the germans mayflower it can it contained 15 Mennonite families, and then before you know it, uh, they they kept coming and coming, and there were so many Germans. At one point, there was even some talk about turning the state, well, the colony's language into officially German, at least in one part of it. Right, and they just spread outward because when the Mennonites came, they they were very poor, and what is now known as Germantown was called Armentown. Armen in German means poor. But they did so well that then they moved a little bit outward to all the very fertile land. And then as people kept coming, they'd have to go out farther and further. And, and before you know it, they were up against the line between the Native Americans and the settlers, and some of them more adventurous ones who would go right to the the edge of where the barriers were, were called Ivorbariolite, and they were considered to be a buffer between between British Pennsylvania and what lied beyond it, uh, Indian Territory. Which would, for me, it, it that could play easily into the the idea of powwow. As, as coming from the Native Americans. I mean, that, that would make sense, or at least the term. Well, yeah. I mean, the, there's been great arguments over this because some people have claimed that in their own family, there is a mix of both German Brauche and some Native practices. Now, folks like Dr. Um, Dr. Kriebel and I think even Dr. Yoder found no real evidence for there, there to be any uh, Native American material in it. But if somebody intermarried, you know, I mean, who am I to say? I, I mean, there's so many permutations of this thing and intermarriage and all this other stuff. I had one of my teachers was Adna Kishbaugh Williams. She's deceased now, so it doesn't matter that I, I say her name. And she she was part Lenny Lenape and and German. And she had some practices that were 
on the Native American side, and but most of it was straight up German work. Uh, I just wanted to jump in for a minute because uh, I would like to uh, talk for a minute more about the actual books that were used in some of the um, magical practices. We discussed the six and seventh books of Moses for a moment, um, Long Lost Friends. You know, and there were several different books. Albertus Magnus's Egyptian Secrets, the the Secrets of Sympathy, and it 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 seems to me on one hand to be they're almost a they're almost a sort of um, subsect subsection of books that I in my opinion can be dra- can be traced at least partially to the the German Faust books. Uh-huh. Um, of magic. I mean, and it, that's very interesting to me because as we know, you know, the Faust legend was very popular in Germany and, you know, Goethe wrote his famous um, sort of epic work uh, on Faust. And, and you have these German books, which dealt with um, very direct spirit magic and things like that. Um, and then on the uh-huh. other hand, you have very practical sort of mixed use books, which uh, as we just already discussed, you know, you have the, you have the curing of uh, farm animals and uh, you know healing of warts and just simple everyday folk mm-hmm. remedies and it's interesting because you have that inherent germanic practicality to the books on one hand like it has to be useful on a day-to-day basis right <laughs> nothing impractical because back then nobody had time to be impractical right you know there there were things to do to keep you alive before winter came and it's just so German. <laughs> like, you know, we, we this has to be practical and it needs to be useful. And otherwise it's nonsense and I don't want to have anything to do with it. And on well, the other... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. It's okay. And I, on the other hand, though, you have, I mean, the sixth and seventh books of Moses, that's a pretty, there's some definitely more sophisticated, advanced operations of magic in there. And, and I think that really points as you suggested to a distinction between a sort of folk practitioner who might've been using these mostly the, the healing remedies with the spell or two thrown in for good measure and the covertly practicing magicians who, if you think about it, it does kind of make sense that if people were coming over due to religious freedom and, and, you know, seeking to be exempt from persecution, it would make sense that some magicians came over because they would feel uh, they they would feel attracted to the opportunity to come to an environment where they could engage in their practices without fear of being killed. Right. And after the first wave of Anabaptists, and we refer to them as the plain people, after that came the church people, the, the Reformed, the Lutherans, and the Awis uh, dumped upon Catholics that, you know, they only made it in small numbers and were turned back to Europe in most cases. But the church people, there were a lot of strange things that were preserved amongst them, uh, even more so. Uh, and it wasn't a surprise to find somebody who was an actual astrologer or somebody who was familiar with what we might call Rosicrucian-type magic, somewhat Masonic, Hermetic kind, kinds of things. Um, and I, I want to say, before I, I go on, I want to go 
revisit the sixth and seventh books of Moses. For those who were more illiterate, what they would, and I think this was true for most grimoires, uh, it was considered an entity in its own right that even if you didn't use it, that it was a talisman in itself. And so people would tote these things around or have them hidden and, you know, expect that its magic or its power would be enough without having to operate it. And that's why so many people would carry smaller versions of Holman's book on them for protection. Because at the end of, of Holman's book, he promises that as long as the book is upon them, no calamity such as fire, drowning, such and such would would come upon them if they, they had the book, if they were uh, wearing it in their, their clothing. Then there were some people who would take the, the sixth and seventh books, more adventurous people, and they would pick through it. They wouldn't entirely understand what they were looking at because it's an entire system of magic. But they didn't know that. But what they would do is they would take certain seals and uh, whatnot, and they would copy that down in what was Hebrew, and they, they'd make it look even more obscure. And thankfully, Joseph Peterson did a bang-up job on redoing the sixth and seventh books of Moses, and everything's as clear as a bell. And I think there were many Hexenmeisters of that day would have, would have, given, would have given their right arms to have such a, a version of the sixth and seventh as this one. And that, that's all I wanted to say about that. They were, they, they were considered to have a power of their own. Well, and the Bible is similar, right? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, that's, and some people who practice this art, if you wish to call it that, their only operative guide and source of charms would be the Bible. There would be nothing else. And that's how it was with my one teacher, Daisy. She had nothing but the Bible. And she said, everything else is rubbish. Ignore it. Just use the Bible. Well, a big part of uh, Brakurai is it's a Christian. It's a Christian art. Yes, it is. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because there. I hope I don't make everyone's eyes glaze over with my reading. Feel free. Jan- Janice makes that happen all the time on the show. <laughs> I have here in the book, and you probably remember it, it's this absolutely wild graph of the the roots of what how, how I try, traced Braukerei. It is indeed a wild graph, yes. <laughs> I, I didn't know how else to do it. <laughs> and it has a very concise definition of of powwowing, and here, oh dear Lord, <laughs> I tried my best. <laughs> so, in the one corner, it it reads like this: the practice called Baukerei or powwow did not emerge from a vacuum. It is a uniquely German synthesis of many cultural influences and religio-magical streams that have emerged into healing ways of German folk Christianity, 
Brauchereien is not necessarily a unified system, and it is uh, many redactions that by ver that vary by locality and individual practitioners. This is identical to the situation of quote unquote cunning art found in the British Isles. Some variations are more influenced by mystical currents such as Bahmanism and Rosicrucian thought. Others are not. Powwow doctors of the past have ranged from simple charmers to full-blown magicians skilled in the occult sciences of astrology, Kabbalah, and alchemical medicine. Like its sister practice of English cunning art, Braukerei is mostly representative of a homey, folkish treatment of some of these more complex practices. Braukerei is thoroughly Christian folk art, and it has been for so many centuries, even if orthodoxy of some of the practices is questionable. This situation of Braukerei is beyond doubt, especially in its American form, for nearly 330 years. That's long enough time, at least long enough for most of us. Then there was a similar passage in Powwow Traditional Folk and Grimoire Magic by Mark Stavish, where he, where he writes, Now, Pennsylvania German folk magic and its related grimoire practices are rooted in a medieval Christian worldview that's inescapable. Fundamentally, it's not rooted in that I don't care what they say. It's not powwow, and it's not braucher. It may be something else, but that's not what it is. While there are some people who, who are attempting to retrofit it into neo-paganism, it's disingenuous. Call it what it is. Don't call it something else. I want to be very clear. Now, this leads me down some other roads. because. When something is set into a cultural matrix, it doesn't really matter what came before it except what the people themselves believe about it. We all know that these these practices are old, but each if each civilization interprets these things uniquely in their own light. For example, not to get too far off the path, but there are some very old pre-Islamic magical practices, as well as those from Persia that are incorporated into certain forms of Sufism and Islamic magic. And it's been reformed to fit Islam. And so it can be called a form of Islamic magic. And that's all there's to it. Uh, Whatever it was before is past. But it doesn't mean that you can't trace it, trace some elements backwards. Um, if you look at my absolutely confusing chart, uh, I've drawn it back as far as the Cop- Coptic Egypt. Mm-hmm. And it can go back even further to the Greek magical papyri. And of course, there are predecessors to that as well. Yeah, and if you have the eyes to see those kind of things... Um... I mean, you could see those those links. Um, there are connections there, for sure. So what are some of the specific characteristics of, I guess you could say, modern uh, powwow? Uh, how does it operate? Um, what, what does it look like? 
I, I think there are many of us who agree that after the Raymeyer fiasco, the, the absolute embarrassment of was considered completely backward beliefs among so-called backward people. There was an effort to, on the, the part of the, the Pennsylvania Germans to hide a lot of this or to what they would do is they would take a lot of these charms and they would make them even more biblical than, than they were before. Or they would cast away all of their old all of their old charm books and they'd only use the Bible. Okay. So that some some so that somebody couldn't say, Oh, look at this witch over there. Uh, because there there was such paranoia uh, instilled by the state. I mean, they did awful things to to the Germans. Uh it was even considered I don't know the what term you'd like to use, but it was absolutely a no no for school children to speak German in school. And then when World War One happened, forget it. it that, that was the end of people speaking the dialect Pansylvani Deutsch and uh, even Hochdeutsch for the, the later people. Um, just one one more thing about the, the PA Dutch themselves. Not all Germans are who came here fit into that. These are people, very specific people, who came from mostly from the palate, from the Palatine today, what would be Southwest Germany. And at the time, of course, we know that Germ there was no such place as Germany, but there were many Germanies, uh, all sorts of duchies and principalities and kingdoms and various things like that under the Holy Roman Emperor and. So a lot of these people came from the palat, uh, the area of the Palatine, and they spoke a dialect called Feltzisch. And with the influx of other types of Germans between the years 1683s, when the Concord landed, the the so-called Mayflower of the Germans, and I would say that some people say the mid 19th century. Or the late night, the early nineteenth century, that those people who came and mixed in were the were what became Pennsylvania Germans, and every German that came over later was not in that group. So it's a very specific group, and they, they came from various areas besides the palate. Uh, some of them from Hesse, Silesia, which is Poland now, Alsace. Just all sorts of places, France, um, Belgium. Yeah. yeah, and what they do is what happened was oh, the Feltzis dialect then got mixed in with all of these other ways of speaking, and then before you know it, you have this unique dialect, which I find mercifully easier to learn than standard High German. Yeah, I've noticed that it's actually I can almost understand it when I read it. Uh, at times, yeah, the de the declinations and all those other things—they're there, but not like in high German. Oh dear God! I wanted to talk for a moment about um, the uh, the idea of sympathy, prayer, and magnetism as they're used in the in the sort of practices of a 
of a uh, broker. Yes. Um, <clears throat> what you'll find is that in the, the study of systems, well, that's, I don't want to call it a system per se, but uh, in, in these forms of folk practice, people do innovate. And in the 19th century, they, they glommed onto mesmerism. Mesmerism's older than, than that, but they started glomming onto that and as well as the, the fad for electricity. And so some of these brokers were actually medical doctors of their time. And if you read the book, and this is such an excellent book, I can't highly recommend it enough. It's Hex and Kopf, History, Healing, and Hexerai by Dr. Ned D. Heindel. And it's about the practitioners of Williams County in Pennsylvania and the uh, special hill. Um, the Haxenkopf is, let me back up. In Germany, as in many other places, they believed that witches congregated for their Sabbath on mountaintops like the Brochen. And the Haxenkopf was considered to be like a local Brochen with witches who would celebrate Black Mass and, and the, the Sabbath right there on the Haxenkopf. And it's mostly made of granite. It's, it's, I wouldn't say it's all that humongous, but what these doctors would do, and this links right into sympathy, I believe, that when they would draw something out of a person, a disease, they would aim it at the hexenkopf. There are some forms of healing where you have to transfer the disease to something else, unfortunately. Some things are as benign as putting them into, I don't know, pieces of food, eggs, whatever. Um, these guys, these these hex doctors who are also medical doctors, they, they would aim it at the hexenkopf to get rid of it. Uh, my teacher taught me to get rid of it, I had to wash my hands in cold water because you know you're healing somebody when your hands get hot. Uh, unfortunately, there are other forms of disposing of very powerful, powerful forms of hexing uh, being, when somebody's truly and honestly for hexed, even to the point of being possessed, that when the broker acts as an exorcist, or even as a healer for something that's absolutely dreadful like cancer, it's transferred sometimes into a, a living being, you know, something like a, a chicken, something bigger, a cow, whatever. And, uh, a pig. A pig. Uh, when I was first getting into the occult, I, I was reading Sybil Leak, and one of the stories that stayed with me is when she was a sick girl she had i i don't know if it was diphtheria or what it was but her grandmother took her pet bird i think it was and healed her by transferring the illness into the the animal and said well you know nothing's for nothing 
you know, she wanted to get well. If you wanted me to help you get well, I had to do this. So everything in nature has a price tag. And it's much like in the Faustian bargain. It's what, what are you willing to pay for it? It's a fascinating technique. And I mean, you see it in, in the New Testament where Jesus transfers the demon into the, the wild hogs. That's right. And you even see it. I mean, we talked to a gentleman uh, named Nicholas Breezewood uh, not too long ago about uh, Mongolian shamanism. And I mean, you, you could see it in other other. Uh, arts as well, but um, the the art of transferring disease into a doll, um, which is supposed to take the place of of that person, and then that person would change their name completely. That doll would be be that person, and then that doll would be destroyed. Um, it's interesting the overlap. Absolutely, and the the spooky thing is, if you don't get rid of it, you get it. Now, the one of the things that, that was disturbing about Daisy's practice is that even though she would wash her hands and reckon that she got rid of it, even with prayer afterwards, she would feel, she was very empathetic, so she would feel other people's diseases even after they've gone home. And she would be out and in bed and very sickly for a while be, between doing these sessions and i found out the same way now uh not to air my own personal business too much but i i have, do have a, an autoimmune disorder and i find that i can't really do too much of this anymore because I, you, she was right you really do feel it it it, it just wipe wipes you out and after talking with a few other people, they reckoned that she was doing it the wrong way. Instead of letting the the divine itself take this thing and move it along, that people like Daisy and myself were using our own life force and reserves to, to move this thing. And that's why we get hit so hard. I think that's a great warning for for anyone out there who is doing any sort of healing uh, or exorcism. Not to, I mean, there's always that potential um, for the spirits to to kind of glom on to the practitioner that's trying to help, as well as as those diseases and energies, which you could say are spirits as well, if you s- subscribe to that. Um, and I've heard that from even Buddhist priests, where if they're praying for someone who is sick, they end up getting sick potentially afterwards. So this is a universal uh, concern. Yes, it is. And uh, on the, the church side of things, I, I know of several priests and bishops who have done exorcism. And the freaky thing about it is, is that unlike in the movies, like where, um, what's his name? Uh, Jason Miller, he, Jason Miller as his character, uh, oh, what was his name? The, dear God, it doesn't matter. He was tempting <laughs> the the, de- the demon from Reagan into him. Take me, take me. Well, you're not supposed to do that. But in real exorcism, sometimes the demonic force, or whatever you wish to call it, does jump into someone else. 
And then the exorcist, the remaining exorcists have to exorcise the the other clergyman, and then it might jump to another clergyman. They have to exorcise him, and and then it finally goes back into the original host. And there are just some exorcisms that are that are never that are never complete. That people die completely possessed. Uh, there was a possession case that the Pope himself, not this Pope, uh, I think it was Pope John Paul II who performed it, and the thing wouldn't go. It basically told him to sod off, and that, that was the end of it. And uh, for whatever reason, they they won't budge, but in many cases they do. It, it's, it's, a, it's a tough subject. It is, and I think it helps... <clears throat> For anybody who is doing this kind of work, not only to have a teacher like you did, but also to um, have a direct connection to some kind of spiritual power or divine force. You know, I um, I had a teach a teacher of mine years ago who I studied with for a period made it clear to me that you're not. He he said very directly, like you're not really supposed to do magic with your own. Uh, life force because you can get sick you can also it'll also age you and it's um it's good if you're connected to a deity or a spirit you know some sort of uh organ of spiritual power um for several reasons and so that's kind of it's kind of interesting to hear a first-hand account of that right and the and that leads into witchcraft as, as well, which we could touch on later if you wish. But yeah, you do have to have other things backing you up. You do have to have spirit allies and other things to because in the great scheme of things, we're we're tiny. We're it's true. Uh, in it's true. in Quranic theology, we're we're just little lumps of clay, but for some reason God has exalted himself in his little claymations, which absolutely pissed off all the angels and the jinn. <laughs> and when they, yeah, well, they when they said God said bow down to him, they absolutely all the angels did except Iblis, who became Shaitan, and they uh, and that was the end of that. But because yeah, there's an in- what's that. I was going to say there's an interesting account of, uh, I think it's actually not from Muslim lore, but I think it might be from Judaic lore or Kabbalistic lore where um, the same story is told. Um, and there are two choirs of angels, a choir of angels associated, I think, with angels of the truth and angels of peace. And the, I think the angels of peace did what God told him to and kneeled knelt before Adam, but the angels of the true angels of truth refused to. And I guess Raphael was given his name uh, Raphael because he he stood by God in his creation of man um, and had a different name prior to that. Like the name Raphael was a was a reward for his I guess um, obedience to the divine one. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, it is. And that that that's a whole other show in itself. 
<laughs> yeah, really. I also wanted to mention, I like your point about how small we are. It makes me think of something that I, uh, I think is of Islamic origin where, where they talk about St. Michael, the archangel and um, how his wings are basically like peacock feathers, that, that's, which is interesting. That's, uh, angel Gabriel. And um, they, they talk in the account I read, it talks about how each like little hair on the feather itself is an angel. So each like hair of each feather is an angel singing praises to God. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, when you consider, and this is why Christian exorcists always say, do not challenge them. Don't talk to them. Don't ask them questions. You can't take them on by yourself, but you need the power of God because it's God's power that takes care of them. You, little man, don't have that power because these things are ancient and they their wisdom if you were to see it and see them in their fullness you would think they were gods and when when you just see the 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 side of them that tries to scare people to death that's not the fullness of what they are they they are so old and and in their way so wickedly wise that there's there's just nothing for it. You need you need you need a big brother behind you to deal with something like that. It's interesting you you mentioned that because Dom and I have been discussing this lately with some other people who we consider pretty experienced and well informed. And there's actually a a very popular current of thought right now, which I think is very dangerous to um, people who are ignorant of these things, which is uh, proposing exactly what you said, except it's taking it a step further and suggesting that these demons actually are just ancient gods that have been maligned by the Abrahamic religions and are really not evil and are really not demons and are really just just gods. And, um, you know, if you have a certain subtlety of understanding and, a, you know, at least some uh, historical knowledge, you might be able to properly contextualize that position. But if you're someone new to magic coming into the practice of magic, seeing that, that could end up in some injurious experiences, some damaging experiences for people, because there is a difference between demons and gods. And there are demons in every culture right. and religion, not just not just Abrahamic culture and religion. That, that's right. And what these people have to know is even if they're gods, even if they're operating with gods under demonic names, if they answer to them, they have to understand, do some research, crack a book, don't go to Wikipedia, just crack a real book, and you will understand that our ancestors, who were very religious, many of them, I know that my Roman ancestors were very, very religious, but not in the sense of what we think of religious today. They, they had a genuine fear of the gods because the gods could be wrathful. And so they, they had not so much an orthodoxy as an orthopraxy. And every ritual act had to be done absolutely precisely so not to piss the god off. Now, that should 
be very familiar to ritual magicians working with angels and demonic forces, that everything has to be done right. Every word has to be pronounced correctly. There cannot be a flaw. Otherwise, there's going to be some problems. And I know that there are some practitioners, especially of the the newer sort, that would have a problem with that, uh, thinking that it's more of a free-for-all. But the gods weren't nice. And all you have to do is look over to living examples of this, like Santoria. You know, they they praise their they they praise them, uh, the the saints, the and uh, they they do what they do what they have to do with them. If they don't give them certain food, certain sacrifices, when divination indicates it, you're going to have a really hard time of it, and. It's because these things, many of them are man- personal manifestations of the forces of nature and other things, and they're not. You're not dealing with Jesus Christ. You're dealing with a very force of something else, na- nature or whatever, in its spiritual form, and it doesn't give a damn whether you love it or not, it, or you're having a good time doing this. There's there's a fear behind it because there is the acknowledgement that the gods can take and give away just like Yahweh. But, you know, after 2000 years of Christianity and even Islam, which says all you have to do is tell God you're sorry and he'll run to you with forgiveness and mercy. The old religions just weren't like that. Well, yeah, you look at, look at Apollo. He is, the god of healing, but he is the god of plague as well. Right. So just calling them up uh, for whatever reason, I mean, communing with them, meditating on them is all well and fine, giving them little offerings just to be friendly and get their attention. That's one thing. But uh, there has to be some humility in this. Even if, even if, the most ardent atheist says, these don't exist, these don't exist, these don't exist. Well, they, they can say that all they want. And I, I know that these powers exist on on one level or another. There's no doubt they exist. I mean, what ends up happening for people who have that atheistic inclination is it ends up playing out like a Lovecraft story sometimes, I think. Well, I think there's <laughs> another dangerous trend that will probably get my wrist slapped is the <laughs> is the idea of apotheosis where you see uh especially some of the darker edgier uh, grimoires being pumped out today how to become a god you know through passing through the the dark side of the tree of life and into the the kelly pots and it's like one one wording of it was the deeper you go into the abyss and the further away from the light, the further you'll get to the true light and become a, a living God. Holy shit. <laughs> I, all, I can, all um, I can think about is going into the sea and diving, trying to dive into the deepest part of the Marianas Trench and hoping to survive. Just to uh, s- steer it uh, back to the um, 
Brock or I, I do want to ask you if you could talk a little bit about Himmelbrief, um, Zalba Zetel, yes, and Anhang Zetel. Okay, um, the Anhang Zetel that was one of the things that the that the uh, editors autocorrect didn't do well. It it actually has an H in it, and it's Anhang Zetel, and it. It's it's also called Zalberzettel, and Zalber means sorcery, and uh, so these are charms that that you make uh, out of paper. The there could be all sorts of things in it. Uh, like I said, the, the, there's the all popular Cider Square, and there's a whole lot of other things. Maybe things from the sixth and seventh books, and who knows what. Uh, but it are biblical verses, and what they'll do is they'll make these up, fold them up in a certain pattern, put them in a little pouch, and with some red string, tie it all up, and you put it around your neck. Now, the 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 trick is is you don't, you can't get it dirty or wet. You're not supposed to take it off, mind you. But uh, I don't know how you do that when you're all sweaty and you need a shower, but. <laughs> But that's that's what those do. They're they're, they're the same. They're, they're the same thing. They uh, they're like the other sorts of charms that you fold up and put into cracks. Say you want to have uh, something happen, you would you would do your charm, fold it up, and then you would hide it somewhere, like in the the crack of a wall. Or for something that's protective, you would take your little parchments or your braucha bag and you would hide it somewhere or stuff the the piece of paper where it can't be found but uh, over doors, inside windows. And that's what one does sometimes with that one charm where I forget which page it's on, but if you write it down, you fold it up and into a triangle and you stick it right into the window frame where so deep that no one can find it and it protects anything wicked from coming through. And like any other charms, they, they have to be renewed after a while. Now with something like a Himmelbrief, is there, as a broker, is there a specific... I guess I should probably mention that a, you know Himmel brief is like a magical letter. Like yeah, it's a it, it's a letter. Originally, there was this legend that it it floated down from heaven, and it said that anybody who obeys my commands, and there was a whole list of commands for someone to follow, and if you do all these things, here's all the things that I'll protect you from. And keep this on your person or in your home, and you abide by my commandments in this letter, and you you will be safe from fire, from plague, from pestilence, and in all sorts. And I have one hanging up now. I I just uh, you know it, it's some people would actually display them, other people would hide them. Reminds me of what uh, we talked to Hunter Yoder not too long ago about uh, hex signs of of Lee Gandy, 
uh, I think it was Lee Gandy, where he would actually uh, hide his hex signs and they weren't visible. Lee Gandy was an absolutely amazing man. Um, yeah, very, very intriguing oh, yes. character. His book is well worth reading. I, I've read it several times over. Here's another book that I, I, I highly recommend, which, Witches of Pennsylvania, Occult History and Lore by Thomas White. And what he shows in one of his pages is absolutely remarkable because it reminds me of the, what the, the Romans and the Greeks used to do. They would take lead, sheets of lead, and they would take a stylus and write curses into it, and then they would hide the thing. There's a metal plate here that he has on display on page 30 and uh, an etch, a rubbing of it on page 32. There was, uh, I believe it was a farmer who took signs from the sixth and seventh books of Moses, a huge slab of iron, carved it all into this slab of iron and buried it on his property so that there would be good luck and fertility and all that. And I thought that was thoroughly interesting oh yeah what a what a connection what's more as just to add a little bit of humor you read this book and you realize that that pennsylvania as far as i'm concerned is far more witchy than massachusetts i mean we had real witchcraft going on here because of of william penn being so loose with his holy experiment there, there were no witch hangings that, that that I know of, except for people taking justice in their own hand into their own hands and doing things like they did to Ray Meyer or other things that I could mention had I the time. But uh, you know, up there, there there was the Salem witch trials, and everybody thinks, "Ooh, the witches are all up there." No, they were all down here. They were. It's true. I mean, there is. There is um, magic and witchcraft in New England, but interestingly, it kind of follows the <laughs> it follows the Germans who migrated to places like Vermont and and uh, further into Mass and places like that. So it's interesting because it still it still sort of follows the trail of these people who migrated to Pennsylvania, like how you find it in the Carolinas too. Right. I, I mean. If you really look for it or you're sensitive to it, Pennsylvania's Creepsville. Uh, it, it, there are some places that'll make your flesh crawl. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you ever been to Wilkesbury? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that makes your flesh crawl on several levels. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it, just kidding. But anyway, um, how about um, besides the witch? Well, kind of align with that right now. So, um, we're getting close to wrapping sure. here, but I wanted to ask you within the path that we're talking about um, the place of like um, power, you know, whether we're talking about timing with the um, celestial bodies or the power of herbs, herbs and plants, and then also the passing on of that power, as you mentioned, uh, contrasexually, for uh -huh. instance, uh, from male to female and female to male. I just wanted to talk a little about, but about power and brokerai and how it's accessed and how it's passed and how it's used. Well, in some instances, this is how some people believe that witchcraft itself was passed along 
through generations that it was carried along and that every other that someone in every other generation would have the ability to do this it would be just a matter of training and outside of the family someone could pass on this power because it was considered even though it it's power that comes from somewhere else that comes from god or the spirits or the spirit world or whatever you want to call it, the gods or whatever that certain families have this following them almost like ancient familiar spirits following a family line for absolutely forever and then passing it on from one hopping one generation to the next sort of like that old seventh daughter of a seventh da- daughter kind of thing and to my knowledge that that that's how it works but if the person who is in line for it doesn't know how to use it or make it work it's it's sort of like having a car with the engine running but you don't know exactly what to do with it so there has to be somebody to train you or to to uh truly activate it within you so that it's that it's completely operative and not doing strange things like making poltergeist phenomena and and things like that that's interesting now when it comes to um like plants and herbs um are there any does the broker oh i know what you're asking me i'm sorry and no that's that's relevant too what you said is relevant too but um i also yeah i'm also in the sense of like accessing the power of natural right some um, some people do in the circles that i learned in even with my 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 friend and teacher janie she described herself as a witch and she used she used herbs but she didn't necessarily use them for when she powwowed for her it was all laying on of hands and reciting the incantation and that was that for all her of her other work that was a different story hmm. because there um, are there are there are broker yeah, bags like similar to mojo that that's right there there are and i speak of that and there's different things that you can put in them. Uh, some of them are one of the main ingredients is, of course, the piece of paper with the charm on it, then a few stones, and every now and then cert- certain herbs. Uh, one comes to mind is, is vervain. There, there are so many other things, so many variations, but when I learned from some of these people uh, and going back to daisy there was nothing else she said you need nothing else you don't need these books you need nothing but the bible and your intent to heal someone and that's that so there there are no herbs no crystals no this no that no stones it, it just depends on who you hit upon every every broker or powwow is going to do things a little bit differently Fascinating, Chris. Well, thank you very much. I, I hate to wrap this up, but we've kind of got a hard stop now. Appreciate your knowledge very much. Um, can you tell us where we can find what you're working on? Um, what are you working on? A, a few years ago, I made a bid on 
some materials in Bosnia. And what they turned out to be uh, are some loose papers and a codex. And if it's not 19th century, it's nothing. And it's somehow survived all that chaos in Bosnia. And it is a book of magic. Uh, the first 80 pages are all Quran. And then after that are all of these, these magic squares that they call Tawiz and colored diagrams, some of which, strangely enough, look like the, the things that you would see in the Voynich manuscript, these, these strange little drawings. And uh, I had two different interpreters look at this, and they said, this book is effed up, uh, excuse me. And they said, it's, it's pretty dark. And that's all they tell me. <laughs> and uh, my Arabic is pretty much uh, limited to liturgical Arabic. But this book was passed down from father to son, father to son, since, like I said, the, the book, I, I dated it to somewhere mid-19th century because I have a similar book of similar material that was written around that time. And so that it needs to be translated and worked into the, the, the greater corpus of, of, this, of these folk magic these, these different forms of folk magic. Um, and I think there may be a tie-in with a really well-known grimoire, not, not, not well-known in the West. There's so much material that's been not untranslated from the, the other languages into English. But there is a grimoire called Ashams and Ma'rifa, and that means the son of the son of, um, I guess I'd, I'd say wisdom or 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 knowledge. Ma'rifa um, has has diff different meanings, uh, but some people say it's the precursor to the Picatrix, which, which is interesting. Now, all I have to do is help somebody help me uh, translate these these things and glue them all together. Well, yeah, the Shams al-Marif, I think sometimes it's called, and I've seen it translated, uh, the son of Gnosis. That's right. Well. That's right. Marif, uh, it, that's right. It, it's Gnosis. So you're work are you working on that manuscript? Yes. I'm diddling with the Shams. It's a bear, but it, it's really interesting. And then I found another that uh, has some things that are pretty similar to things we see in the West. And it's a it's it's a Persian manuscript called Tam Tami Hindi. Interesting. Yeah, Shams al Marif. So Tam Tami Hindi, you said. Yeah, what's what's Tam, the nature of this manuscript? It's a grimoire. Interesting. Yeah. So there's so many interesting things that haven't been translated. Uh, that's exciting. That's exciting. I know it shouldn't be hard for you to find a publisher for those. I mean, I, right? I know it. I know it. It's, it's just a matter of, well, I was supposed to have a translator this, this past spring, but then the coof came around and everything shut down and my people in New York City. Well, that was the end of that, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there you have it. But 
they're they're still looking at it and one one side's supposed to be the Arabic and the others to be the, the English. Excellent. Excellent. Now, if people need to want to get in touch with you, uh, what's the best way for them to reach you, find you? Uh, people can always try to reach out to me on Facebook and message me. I could be found by looking under C.R. Bilardi. My initials C.R. and then B-I-L-A-R-D is in Delta I. And they, they, they ought to message me. I I put nothing on my page at all. Okay, great. Well, I just want to personally thank you for coming on the show. It was a delight having you on, and it was very educational and informative. Thank you so much for devoting so much of your day to us, and uh, we look forward to seeing your your further work. And I want to encourage anyone who does not have a copy of the Red Church to obtain it. It can be obtained, but through Pendrake Publishing, it is really a phenomenal text. It's it's to me the end all be all of of one's search if they're le- seeking to learn about genuine Pennsylvania brockeri, folk magic. It covers, it leaves no stone unturned. I mean, you even go into the history of the religious communities in That's Pennsylvania. That's right. I, wanted, I want people to have context uh, and because magic today tends to be like a new age smorgasbord. And in order to understand the, the magic, if one wishes to call it that, then you have to understand the culture itself. You can't separate the two. That's very true. And I think that goes for most kinds of magic. And it's something that could really bear um, more attention is that, that orientation. I mean, I'm grateful for it. And it also has practical guidance on, um, on doing some of this kind of work in the book. So it's not entirely a historical study. It goes through history, theory, as well as practice. And it seems to me that, in your creation of this book, you made it a magical book as well, because in the in the in the you know frontispiece of the book, I see a blessing. That's right upon the actual book. So it seems as though, right in keeping with the tradition of the Brockers, you've made this book a a, a talisman in it itself. Is. It is. I, I've I've made it just uh, as Holman's book was. I made it just like uh, all of the other magical books that. They have they have their own personality and and power of their own. Uh, all you have to do is keep it around. Is is all? It's that easy. That's wonderful. Well, thanks very much for coming on our show today. All the best to you, and um, I'm really looking forward to uh, the opportunity for people to learn more about this through this interview. And hopefully, it also uh, hopefully it also lends to some more sales of your book. Well, thank you so much. This was a wonderful opportunity, and I truly appreciate it. Okay, that was Chris Bellardi. We're excited to have had him on the show. He compiled the definitive book on Pennsylvania German powwow. It's, there's no other book like it, really. It's amazing. It covers everything. Um, I consider it a precious part of my library. It is an invaluable resource for the understanding of American folk magic, Germanic culture in America, magnetic healing, witchcraft and sorcery in America, 
the use of grimoires and more. It's just, he was painstaking in every single respect. And the book in itself was deliberately designed to be a magical talisman that would protect the wheel, the, the one who owned it. I can't say enough good about this book. It's excellent. Pendrag published it. They're very nice people. And I know it is still in print. It's very much worth your while. So I strongly recommend you obtaining a copy of his tome. If you are interested in this subject, which assuming you're listening to the show, you have some interest. So yes, this book uh, is very valuable. I've referred to it often. Um, he's got a lot of nice uh, practical things in it. It's not only a historical survey, but it's a, a practical manual. Brockere being um, fairly unknown from my understanding, as far as folk magic goes, uh, I hope this episode serves to increase awareness and knowledge on the subject. It's true. Uh, there's there's a resurgence of interest in folk magic. It's always been an interest of mine ever since I was a child. But there has been a resurgence in the past, say, five to ten years or so, at least, uh, of interest in folk magic. Yet, strangely, the the uh, Germanic folk magic, which really goes back to the beginning of uh, the American Republic, often is left out of these conversations or uh, treated as a side note, when in fact it, it really it played a huge role in um, the development of the currents of magic in this country. I mean, it definitely synthesized with and contributed to Appalachian magic, hoodoo, and root work and conjure. Uh, also drew on Pennsylvania Dutch practices and books that were popular among them. Um, it is known that the Pennsylvania Germans mostly had favorable interactions with the Native Americans in the area. And given this sort of um, openness, they had to uh, uh, folk magic and natural plant remedies. Natural medicine goes back very far in Germany and in Germanic culture. Um and again, the attitude of tolerance, I'll, I'll contribute to, to me at least, to the suggestion that there was exchange and interchange between the Germans and the Native Americans, uh, well beyond just simple trading of goods. And this interchange really happened all over America. There is no such thing as a pedigreed or patented form of American folk magic. Uh, America is, uh, as the oft-repeated and now banal term melting pot is is known very well. It is a melting pot. And many different cultures contributed to a sort of folk synthesis of practices in America. You have Germanic influences, Native American influences, and African influences, as many know. But there is also a strong Chinese influence. There is a Jewish influence as well. Um, there's a European grimoire influence. So it's it's a very interesting world. And examining the Germanic component of it provides us with additional material that can assist us in adequately contextualizing the um, world and the situation in early America. And the spiritual character of early America is uh, an intriguing subject in itself, which goes beyond the scope of this current show. Yeah, and I mean, you can see the the clear, very clear connections to other folk magics of the Americas. Um, you have the mesmerism, which you also find in uh, other arts such as espiritismo. I mean, there are so many similarities with hoodoo. You can almost say it's it's European hoodoo in a way. But, you know, 
like you were saying, it's kind of hard to distinguish one from the other because they all kind of melted together in this, in this uh, one location. So um, I hope that this was an informative and um, helpful episode for people and maybe um, could motivate some people to kind of look further into this topic. I think now is the time for us to move into our book review segment. So Janice, what do you have for us today? Funny story for our listeners is uh, a very young Janice and uh, Dominic used to enjoy doing magical experiments from a book called The 21 Lessons of Merlin. Now, it's well known at this point that this book is not historically accurate. And the author, some people feel, is of a dubious character. I'm not sure if I'd be willing to go that far. But we got a lot from our experiment, early magical experiments from this book. It, it, this We're going back to the early 90s, a time when you know there wasn't a lot of quality magical material available to the average person, much less uh, young teens. Um unless there was a magical shop or access to a mail order. And during this phase, we took this sort of Llewellyn pseudo-Druidic book and we extracted uh, ideas in it and experimented with some of the magical concepts in it. It was an interesting time. Uh, You know, young magicians, I guess you could say, experimenting. It was fun. And that book, though, it... um, though it's not historically accurate, I think in other ways is still a useful, is a useful book because of the way that it um, integrates Western ceremonial magic, elements of Jungian ideas, Gnosticism, and, and some Druidic concepts as well. We built our own sort of Stonehenge out of wood in an abandoned water treatment plant uh, that was surrounded by a field. There was a field of trees, groves of trees, and dried up canals with clay-like earth on the bottom of them and large pieces of fallen trees. So us and uh, some a few friends built this sort of uh, wooden henge, and we would have sort of magical rituals inside of it. And other things like uh, drum circles, using bones that we found in the area and turtle shells from dead turtles that we found in the area. So uh, with that historical anecdote, I'd like to introduce a book that is, I think, far more historically accurate. Um, this It's on inner traditions and it's called Secrets of the Druids, From Indo-European Origins to Modern Practices. I'm pretty impressed with this book. It really focuses on attempting to reconstruct what the Druids actually thought and did. And it uses historical references, comparative mythology, linguistics, uh, archaeological evidence, etymology. It compares the Vedic Hindu culture and the Celtic culture, which were from a greater parent culture, the Indo-European or what used to be called Aryan culture. It's pretty interesting book. It explores the pre-Christian uh, spiritual practices of uh, the Celts, Druids, and Gauls. And it is a really thorough examination of these things. And it is, it is by someone who's been a Celtic scholar since 1982. And I believe she is also part of a, a Celtic reconstructionist uh, religious group. Uh, I particularly like the the appendices which go into some very interesting things such as sacred foods and beverages hindu and celtic parallels other world regions things like that um this book is 
intriguing and i've i've continued for most of my life to have an abiding interest in actual druidism as i have in in most indo-european indigenous practices it also goes into the structure of the uh, actual tribes to a certain degree as well so it describes the the social structure and the social structure being based upon a mythic structure and how these two things were interdependent um and these in turn were related to the structure of the spiritual realm this is a serious book very focused um very scholarly but also written i think for the practitioner who is interested in accessing this tradition i definitely recommend it for somebody who is um, interested and involved in this sort of spiritual stream or or for somebody who is interested in reconstructing uh, the ideas of the pre-Christian European peoples, uh, because ultimately this book also uh, sort of reveals that the, Celt- the, the Celtic st- social and religious structure was definitely an outgrowth of and a development of the the early sort of Indo-European um, religious, magical, and cultural system. And so I think it's useful not only for people who are interested in uh, Celtic spirituality, Druidism, and uh, magic related to those things, but, but I think it's also useful for people who are interested in examining that, um, that earlier stratum of culture that produced the um, Persians, the Indians, and the European peoples. Very nice. And the name of the book, once again? Secrets of the Druids, From Indo-European Origins to Modern Practices. And it was written by Teresa Cross, who has put in a lot of work on this subject. She's been working on this kind of stuff since 1982. She's also written other books, such as The Truth About the Druids. uh, And she writes for um, a periodical called The Independent Celt. Uh, definitely, again, I think it's worth your time if if this is within your interests. Excellent. Thank you. Nice review. Um, so I think that would be it for this episode. You can follow us on Facebook and on YouTube. Like and subscribe in those places. You can always give us a rating and a review on iTunes. That would be very nice of you as well. Otherwise, we will talk to you in the next episode. Thank you for listening. Mm